0: Welcome to the September 25th, 2015 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Duzitti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on the historic U.S. visit of Pope Francis and his speech to Congress that he just uh, made uh, just yesterday. Patty Calhoun of Westward, what have you thought of the big papal visit?
1: Well, it's a good reminder of just how powerful religion is still around the world. And even more stunning, I thought, than the congressional speech was the speech he gave in New York beforehand, that he started out talking about, in sympathy with the tourists who had been killed at the Hajj, you know, the 700 pioneers going to Mecca, and that he brought that up, and he was embracing all religions, really stunning visuals from across across the country.
0: Craig Silverman, attorney with Silverman and Alievus, also a radio talk show host on KNUS. Uh Impressed or not impressed from some of the comments we've heard from the Pope?
2: I have not been overly impressed with his trip to Cuba or mm-hmm. to America. I thought it was a great PR show for President Obama, but it didn't do much for freedom in Cuba. Wouldn't even meet with the dissidents. And then his speech yesterday before Congress, my goodness, that was timid and uh, a little bit People. He wouldn't talk about the plight of Christians in the Middle East, begging America to get involved and help rescue fellow Christians. Uh, didn't talk about abortion directly, pulled all his punches, soft, gentle. He's a simple, kind-hearted man, best I can tell, but I don't think he's giving the Islamic State much to worry about.
0: Penfield Tate, attorney now with QTAC Rock. Thank you very much for uh, joining us. Uh, also a long state lawmaker. Uh, what have you made from the comments? And while we have uh, Craig's point of view, we've heard from a lot of folks that it, it's been hard to pin down the Pope on any particular political persuasion, whether it's Republican or Democrat. People have something to find other in support or to argue about. What are your thoughts?
3: Well, I, I think um, at first blush, both Patty and Craig are right. I mean, um, this uh, is a fellow who's been, it's been great theater. It's been great show. He has been providing. He has said some things prior to this trip that have sort of, I think, worried some, for lack of a better term, establishment Catholics who are used to the traditional dogma. Um, but i think he was very measured in his remarks in front of congress i think he was going out of his way not to be political in that context which seems ironic i mean he's there before a joint session of the u.s congress and he he's being apolitical but what i think we'll see is that some of his later pronouncements will sort of put that visit in context i think his His visiting Cuba before coming to the U.S. was a clear indication that he's sort of taking a different look at the world than than, uh, his predecessors. Uh, He's been, I think, much more liberal's not the good word, maybe more expansive in his thinking in terms of how the church ought to relate to the broader world. Um, And I think really this trip was just sort of uh, a a hint of things to come. He went to Cuba, he came to the U.S., he's doing these things to lay the groundwork for some other work he may do. I mean he's turning the Vatican inside out with, he's been very aggressive politically with firing some of the established guard there. He's overturning the operation of the Vatican Bank. So he's been a revolutionary in his, in his own quiet and way, but I don't think he'll be understated for much longer.
0: Natasha Gardner, senior editor of 5280 Magazine. Uh, whether folks agree or disagree with Pope Francis, he seems to be getting a lot of conversation going. What do you think? Mm,
4: a lot of conversation. Most interestingly, a lot of conversation outside of the Roman Catholic faith. There's a lot of people who, who maybe don't, have never set foot in a Catholic church who are paying attention to what he's saying or are interested in what he's saying. And it's important as we have those discussions to remember he is a religious leader, not a political leader. So his, his purpose and sort of what he's promoting is a bit different. What I think is most compelling about him on, you know, separate issues aside, abortion, gay rights, gay marriage, things like that. There's a lot of controversy, but he comes back to again and again, a focus on compassion and helping others. That's really his, his important stance, which is interesting because it's almost like back to basics. You know, this is not a new thought. This is a very old thought in the church. And the fact that he's bringing that out and that that message is still so relevant today says something that speaks beyond religious lines. If you're not really it's something that you can, you can listen to and say, yeah, that's something I need to put into my life. So that, that message, if that's what we get out of his visit to the United States, I think is a good one.
0: And also putting his money where his mouth is visiting a homeless shelter in New York. Mm-hmm. It's uh, not just uh, lip service. It's a good point. Speaker of the House John Boehner surprised many on Friday by announcing his resignation from Congress effective at the end of October. Boehner said he wanted to avoid a protracted battle for leadership and his resignation seemingly opens a possibility for a more conservative speaker. Patty, this was the big news on Friday morning uh, nationally. We even switched on our own script because of it. Um, when you heard about it, what did you think?
1: Well, when I talked about the power of religion and the power of the Pope, wow, look at this. So <laughs> yesterday, Boehner has said that was his long time, his lifetime goal was to have the Pope speak before Congress. So here, this might not have been his Pope of choice, but here's the Pope. He's speaking there. He had a private audience with the Speaker. They, they talked beforehand. He, the Pope asked the Speaker to pray for him. Uh, then he does. You know, he has this speech. He's weeping in Congress, very emotional. The next morning, he decides he's going to resign. He's going to leave. He gives the reason. So either he saw the light when the Pope was there, or he realized he did not have a prayer of ever getting the Republicans to agree on anything and he just decided it was time to go. I mean, extraordinary move. Will the Republicans now use this opportunity to come up with someone who will be more obstinate, less able to bring people together? It kind of looks like that, like that. Paul Ryan wants no part of it. Kevin McCarthy's kind of the lead right now out of California, so this was an amazing move following right less than 24 hours after the pope was at Congress for Boehner to say goodbye after 25 years.
0: Craig, politically, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of conversation about now where does House leadership go, but seemingly it has to go more conservative. It's that, uh, you already saw uh, more conservative senators uh, like Ted Cruz, uh, other conservative members of Congress, cheering this uh, situation. If it does get more conservative, what does that bode for Republicans generally for 2016?
2: I think the Republican base is really disappointed in Boehner and McConnell, gave them both majorities. They've done nothing to really stop Barack Obama. So they will look for somebody who can get that job done better. I think it's a shame that here Congress loses its highest-ranking person of color a lone member of the Congressional Orange Caucus, and uh, I'm not going to cry over it. Yeah, you can laugh. Thanks, Ken. You You know, he cries enough for me, and yesterday when he kept crying and he had a handkerchief to dry his eyes, but then he'd blow his nose into his handkerchief, that's not good judgment. I think you need two different handkerchiefs, and for a variety of reasons, this guy is ready to have his time over in Congress. He likes to golf. He likes to drink. He'll be fine in retirement. Penn, if uh, you're part of Don't the House... Don't ask me about two handkerchiefs, <laughs> not okay? Don't ask me about
0: two <laughs> handkerchiefs, no problem. I promise. <laughs> if, if you're a part of the House Democratic leadership, uh, right now in the minority, uh, do you look at this as a positive situation for the
3: 2016 election or challenging? I, I think it, it, in that context, you're doing cartwheels, but you stop after the third one because you say, oh, my God. Now, where's the voice of reason on the other side of the aisle with which we can try to have any hope of brokering any agreements or any compromise? Uh, I understand, you know, Boehner deciding that as a matter of personal conviction, he's decided he wants to go into another direction with his life. I wish he would have finished out this term because it almost looks like he's running away from his final fight. And I'd like to see him show some leadership. When you look at what's happening with Republicans in contrast in Congress and then look at the, the, um, the presidential election and how that is shaping up on the Republican side of the aisle, one person's opinion, uh, the lunatics are now running the asylum. I think you've got members in Congress who are looking at their potential nominee thinking, oh, my goodness, is this really what, what we may end up with as our nominee for our party? And then you've got this contingent within the Republican Party in Congress that doesn't want to agree on anything just out of principle and out of spite of trying to disagree with the president who's on his way out the door. So doing what's best for the country is not even a consideration at this point. They're just looking to see how can we embarrass President Obama or just be obstinate and mad because we're not president. And at the rate they're going, someone from their party is not going to be president, and they may lose their majority uh, in Congress if they keep this up. And I think Boehner was probably their last best hope of bringing reason to the situation. With his departure, I think it's going to descend into more of a mess than it is now.
0: Natasha, if Penn's right, and the mess only gets bigger with a conservative voice leading the House Republicans into more fighting and maybe a shutdown of government or anything else. Do you think at some point somebody, whether it's from the Senate or at least from the presidential camp that that, uh, Penn talked about, will want to step in and urge some sort of compromise so at least something's happening before the 2016 election?
4: Well, I'd love for that to happen. I'm just not sure what would actually make it happen. It's, it's been necessary for a long time. You know, here we are, it's fall, the leaves are changing, the nights are getting cooler, and it's time to start talking about a shutdown again. You know, so if if, if it wasn't going to happen before, I mean, yes, it should happen now. I'm just not sure that anyone's going to get to that compromise point, especially we're spending a ridiculous amount of times looking over the, the, the idea of defunding Planned Parenthood, which provides very necessary medical needs to women across this country, and they're not providing a solution of how they would fill or supplement or, or make those, those services still available. It's, it's focusing on these, these one sort of hot topic issues instead of looking at the bigger picture for Americans. So, yeah, we need compromise. I'm just not sure anyone's able to do it. Maybe we should just lock them in the room over the weekend, and say no Twitter, no Facebook, no Instagram, no Fox News, no New York Times, no interviews. Just do some work.
0: I'd love to see that happen, but I think uh, that's not very likely. (laughs) The Colorado Supreme Court ruled this week that a workaround used by legislators to distribute funding for K-12 education is indeed constitutional. The decision stems from a lawsuit claiming that lawmakers violated Amendment 23, which requires school funding to increase with inflation and enrollment growth per year. Uh, Craig, you're one of our two esteemed lawyers at the table today. Uh, You can help explain how this lawsuit went down and really what it means for Colorado education funding.
3: Well,
2: part of it is legal, and then part of it is political. And it's funny how the liberals always come out the way that big public school viewpoint uh, dictates, and vice versa for the conservatives. And then if you look at the makeup of the Supreme Court and the way they broke down, our friend Rich Gabriel was just appointed to the Colorado Supreme Court. He voted with Will Hood and Monica Marquez, Liberals appointed by Democrats, John Hickenlooper. But Brian Boatwright made the difference. A Republican appointed by John Hickenlooper. He was part of the majority, the, the four, uh, in an opinion led by Nancy Rice. So it's like the Lobato case where public schools fought for more funding. Uh, it comes down to the base amount and whether you can take away from the supplement to the base uh, amount. And the four said you could and the three more liberal members said you can't so it's interesting how de- depending on your political perspective your legal
3: analysis seems to be changed
0: well Penn, then i'll throw it to you for your legal analysis sure. regardless of where you're at politically what did you make the decision uh,
3: you know this is an interesting case because it really was a procedural decision but it brings about a substantive effect real quickly people had filed suit to challenge the negative factor in the school finance formula saying that the way the legislature put the negative factor into law and applied it undercuts and violates amendment 23 which was passed in 2000 by the voters to increase funding for public education when they filed the suit the The state moved to dismiss it, which is a procedural move that says if everything the people who filed the complaint said is true, under no theory of fact or law can they prevail, court throw the lawsuit out. The trial court said, well, no, we don't agree with that. I, the judge, think that there is a version, there are interpretations that they could prove their claim that this is unconstitutional, so we go to trial. It then went up to the Supreme Court under what's called original jurisdiction, and the only question before the court was whether to overturn the trial court's decision to not dismiss the lawsuit summarily or to order the court to dismiss it summarily. What's sort of the extraordinary effect of this decision is on a split vote of 4-3, the state Supreme Court ordered the trial court to dismiss the suit summarily. And in doing so, what they essentially said is that the lawsuit as framed even if you give the benefit of the doubt to the people who filed the suit there is no interpretation of fact or law you can conclude that amendment 23 has been violated and I I think that's extraordinary I also happen as Craig theorized disagree with that basically what the lawsuit says is even if you read amendment 23 narrowly to say it requires an increase in base funding what the legislature did by passing the negative factor is it allowed it to reduce overall funding for K-12 education because when amendment 23 was passed there was no negative factor so voters who supported it knew that amendment 23 was going to generally increase funding for all school districts over time when the legislature changed the formula they essentially undercut the effect of Amendment 23, which is what the challengers were claiming, and the court decided that doesn't matter. What only matters is technically whether the base funding was cut, and they ruled that it wasn't. So the lawsuit's going to be dismissed, but it's probably not the end of this fight.
0: Natasha, I'm grateful we have very talented, uh, wise attorneys on our panel. I'm still a bit confused with the whole thing. I have to just be (laughs) honest with you. It seems that it still comes down to that we saw a a legal fight over Tabor a few weeks ago. We have a legal fight over Member 23. They didn't go the way that the um, folks who filed the lawsuits wanted them to go. Is there an appetite at Capitol Hill to address these as the legislature and not just as lawsuits?
4: Well, I think that again and again, we're showing that particularly education issues end up in, in the courtroom rather than at the legislature, but it, it is befuddling to me because again and again, Coloradan voters and just people in general seem to say, yeah, we care about K-12 funding, we care about K-12 of education, let's find a solution to this, a big think solution that would work. And even when we do come up with something like that, like Amendment 23, then it starts to get sort of, you know, stripped away a little bit, or there's changes, or, you know, any economics professor. You don't have to be one to look at it and say, okay, well, Amendment 23 plus recession plus Tabor equals a problem. <laughs> Something's going to give here. Something's not going to be funded. Um, and the, the problem with all of these discussions is that it moves away from talking about the kids, which is something I bring up again and again at this table. But, you know, for instance, I'm a reader. In my house, I have a ton of books. I care about this. If that means that my child, when he walks into a education system, will have a better chance at being literate because of that mere fact, it seems a shame to me that our education system can't equalize that somehow. So it's, it's in the midst of these, you know, base funding, you know, factor funding, negative factor, all of that. Okay, important discussions. But let's get back to what we're trying to do here, which is to educate our kids and prepare them for a workforce.
0: Patty, are we going to see uh, anybody take this on as a law or is it just going to be more lawsuits?
1: I think we will see some attempt in the next year or two to untangle some of the really really sticky parts of the Colorado Constitution that we've that we've added by amendment 23 by the Gallagher amendment by the Tabor amendments that just Keep the, keep the budget so tight and so you can't move things around. So even if you come up with a good educational plan, you might have trouble figuring out where to find the funds and how to adjust it. It's not just education, but education is the biggest chunk. So certainly now with the group, the bipartisan group, that is looking into Colorado's future suggestions that need to be made, they are looking at can is there the political and the public will to finally fix the Constitution and just take those knots out of it.
0: The Denver Police announced this week that it will require off-duty officers to working security to wear body cameras. The decision reverses a previous policy and greatly expands the use of this wearable technology. Penn people have been in favor of body cameras and their use. Were you surprised about this expansion of the policy?
3: I was surprised the city decided to do it, but I think the decision's the right thing. When you look at the, the Denver's history, uh, Denver police officers have really been able to supplement their income over the years by off-duty assignments, and they get these off-duty assignments specifically because they're police officers, they're sworn law enforcement officers, and so what it's really telling you is whether they're off-duty or on-duty, they're always police officers, and that's sort of the way they're viewed. So I think requiring the, wear, them to wear the Camera technology while they're in off-duty assignments that they get because they're police officers is consistent and it's the right thing to do because it provides continued oversight, it's a consistent application of policy, and really the reason it's been done for on-duty officers is to get accountability both with respect to the officer's behavior, but also accountability on the part of the public to deter people from making false accusations about police misconduct because it's on camera. So I applaud the city for doing this. This is the right decision, the right way to go, and hopefully the police officers won't file a lawsuit or the union suit. They'll just step in line and do it because they don't, it's not necessarily a right that they have to the off-duty employment anyway.
0: Natasha, you've personally done some great work when it comes to covering Denver police. If you haven't checked it out, go to 5280.com and and see some of the work that, that Natasha and her team has done. What did you think when this policy was announced?
4: Well, what was interesting, um, even before the policy, I, I talked to the police extensively about the camera pilot and how it worked. And, and unanimously, the, the cops were very, very excited about having them. They thought it would help them in situations of accusations of use of force, but they also thought that it helped citizens sometimes maybe calm down when they knew that they were on camera. And there's some, some national statistics relating to that. Um, so I was surprised when the moonlighting cops were not included in the plan as it was rolling out. I'm glad that they're making this change. I do want people to be careful as they're looking at these cameras. Some people seem as like, hey, this is great. We'll never have any problems with the cops anymore. And there are a whole slew of things. I mean, obviously, abuse can still happen. The Cameras have to be turned on. But even when you have footage, that footage doesn't always look the same to other people. Eric Gardner is a perfect example of this. We've seen this in a few legal cases across the country as well. What someone sees as a, a violent act or a move that looks threatening may not look that way to another person on the jury. So while I absolutely applaud the use of these cameras, I think it's great that the moonlighting officers will be using them as well. It's not a uh, solve-all for the police issues that we have in this community.
0: Patty, a good call by Denver Police?
1: A very good call by the community groups, too, that complained that the moonlighting cops were not included in this policy. Over the years, many of the problems and controversies involving the Denver police have stemmed from some of the moonlighting jobs, how the jobs are handed out, how the jobs are handled, and this at least will remove one
2: portion of the controversy.
0: Craig, as a former prosecutor in the city of Denver, I'm very interested in what you have to say about this.
2: Well, good. I'll tell you. (laughs) Does anybody ever worry about a police officer's right to privacy? I mean, are they just a human recording device? For example, at the high holidays in my synagogue, they're always off-duty Denver police officers, and I like to shoot the breeze with them, but am I supposed to think, wow, you're recording everything we're talking about? Look, we're getting used to it in the system, seeing these body camera uh, statements as part of discovery. Instead of having witnesses write out statements, they just talk and we get to see the video, and it gives defense attorneys a lot more to work with. I just wonder about their right to privacy.
0: Let's get to a very, very part of the show, uh, Disgrace of the Week. And as always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off.
2: I'm heading up to
1: Boulder where the University of Colorado, thanks to the Republicans who are organizing the debate, seems to be losing some of the opportunity that the DU had when it hosted the Democratic debate School looked great. It was a big open discussion. There were a lot of activities around it. And limiting the tickets is going to be a problem. You're not going to have the same kind of free-for-all. Just getting around. It's not like you could ask the candidates questions with 15 candidates.
2: Take a long time. But still, it was a little more open. Greg, some people think that that advertisement with the children counting down to a nuclear explosion is the disgrace. put out by a group called Advancing Colorado. I think it's right on. I think Michael Bennett was the disgrace the way he acted on that Iran nuke vote and the way he hides from the public in talking about it.
3: Penn. Uh, John Boehner, he got the majority he wanted for, now he's running away. Um, He could have shown some leadership.
0: Natasha.
4: Volkswagen. I, I had a colleague today who actually posted there's a bumper sticker that says DOS Fraud. You can get them on DOSFraud.com and, and proceeds from it go to help clean air initiatives.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, say something nice about somebody, uh, a poignant one this week, Patty Sarsoff.
4: Well, Katie Atkinson, who we were talking
1: about here last week, always a great addition around the table, passed away yesterday. Um, as one of my writers said reporters knew her as the golden pundit she always had great things to say to reporters but around this table she was lively fun intelligent and I have to say I'm glad to think of her up at that Colorado inside out in the sky where she's sitting down with Ken Gordon and two of the originals at this table Pierre Jimenez and Sue O'Brien and wouldn't you love to hear their conversation right now
0: I completely agree Craig?
2: I totally echo everything you had to say about our friend Katie. She was special, and she had the courage to come to a place like this, which is largely liberal, and be a little conservative. Mm -hmm. And she did that before then at Colorado College, which is sort of a liberal place, my alma mater and hers. Katie, rest in
3: peace. You were lovely. Penn. Katie Atkinson, for all the reasons expressed by Patty and Craig. She was one of a kind. Natasha,
4: Uh, this is a ditto situation. What a legacy for Colorado and our political system, and you know, reading and hearing the things that have been said about her—just incredible legacy left for for our state, which is great.
0: Yeah. And I'll certainly add to that as uh, I've been very proud and happy to produce the program for a couple years now, but I've been producing and part of the producing team for almost 20 years. Um, You get to know different people in the community and their go-tos, whether it's to be a fantastic part of this panel or just to answer questions and help you get through some topics. Uh, Katie was always one of those people who was not only happy to help us but provide uh, that kind of uh, balanced input that you just can't get anywhere else. Um, We haven't had around the table for a few years, Few years mainly because I really want folks to know uh, she's so fantastic she was working for a lot of campaigns and usually what we do is if uh, folks and these great pundits that we have featured on the panel if they're working officially with a the campaign they get rested until they're done with that campaign well Katie was so wanted and needed by so many campaigns she was always working for some other campaign it was she certainly uh, we would love to have her more often but she was either on a campaign or so busy we couldn't have her on recently but uh, for longtime fans of the show they know what kind of critical voice she was for us to I uh, always had probably, uh, whether it was a pun or a funny joke, uh, and someone that I think everybody to a person that, that who's been around this table was very fond of. So uh, we will we'll certainly miss her, but, I, Patty, I absolutely loved your point. We, uh, we now sadly have a CIO panel uh, up, and I think that conversation would be just amazing between uh, Sue, and I can just see the jokes going back and forth between uh, Pierre and Ken and now Katie. So uh, that will be uh, something I will look forward to hopefully many years from now to, uh, to see. And, uh, uh, hope that both all of her family and friends uh, know that we're thinking of them. That is all the time we have tonight. Thank you very much for tuning in. Remember that you can catch any part of CIO or CIO Postgame online, and be sure to check out the CIO Podcast on iTunes. For everyone here at Channel 12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for watching. Good night. <music>